Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Today, we're extremely pleased to have Heather McGowan with us. Heather is an international speaker, writer, advisor. She was last year the global voice for education on LinkedIn, and we're extremely pleased to have her. I'm a huge fan of her work. Heather, very, very welcome to this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be here, and I'm also a big fan of yours, Peter. So this is uh, a real treat. Wonderful. Well, um, I wanted to have a little bit of a conversation about the, the topic that is close to your heart, um, the future of work. We, we recently had a chance to spend some time together also in San Francisco doing a, a future of work tour. Um, you, you do a lot of work on what is happening with the changing world, how technology is accelerating that. There's a lot of talk about the fourth industrial revolution. How tangible is that, Heather? If we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, is this something which is about to happen, happening right now? How tangible is that? I think it's, uh, it depends on what industry you're in. I think we're in this sort of liminal space or in-between space between the, the third and the fourth industrial revolution. And if McKinsey's right, we've digitized less than 20% of our economy. So we can't all the way be in the fourth, but there are certainly some businesses that are. Businesses that are born digital, everything about them is digital. So for those guys, they're in the fourth industrial revolution and they work and they think differently than we did in the third industrial revolution. And what we need to do is prepare our workforce for the fourth industrial revolution, which is going to look very different than the third industrial revolution. So uh, picking up on that, what, what is the fundamental difference once we go from number three to number four? Is, is there a, a really big gap in between? I think it's two things. I think it's talent and tools. In the third industrial revolution, you were valued by your stored expertise, what it is you knew how to do better than anybody else. And now a lot of our technology tools can do things that are mentally routine and predictable, even if they're at a high cognitive level. So that changes how we think about talent. And then tools uh, in the third industrial revolution, it was about computerization. It was new. And if you knew how to use those tools, you had an advantage, but you had to learn those tools in order to use it. So think about something very simple that we all use, Microsoft Office. You couldn't immediately start using Microsoft Office if you didn't have some forms of contextual reference. So I say you had to learn the tool in order to get the leverage out of it. When we get into the fourth industrial revolution, we shift our relationship with tools. Tools start doing more and more cognitive things. And instead of learning the tool in order to use it, we start learning from and with the tool. If you look at that and then reflect on what that means in terms of work, it seems to me like that is going to be a tremendous shift. This is not, in my opinion, going to be a gradual evolution. It seems like that means an almost fundamental different paradigm on how we think about work and employment. It is. And it's even more of a big shift in terms of how we think about education, which has been about creating a society of educated people that can work and live together and pick our government, etc. But it's also a big part of workforce development is education. And right now, we're so focused on codifying and transferring skills. John Hagel calls it codifying and transferring predetermined skills and existing knowledge. And I think that's the perfect way of saying it. We've said, okay, you want to be a nurse? Here are the things you need to do to be a nurse. And go through this program. We'll download those skills into you. And when you're done, you'll be a nurse. Some of that may still be true. There's some of that process, which we'll still need. But the idea of training somebody to do something and then presuming that they're only going to be able to do those things and then plus a few additional things they pick up along the way sets the wrong expectation. I think we got to move from learning to do in order to working to learn 
So we've learned in order to work, which we learned a thing in order to continuously do that thing. And now we're going to have to learn to learn so that we can work and learn for the rest of our lives. I think that is going to be an enormous societal challenge because you've traveled the world and I see a lot of geographies around the world where the education system is still very much stuck in an old paradigm. Mm -hmm. I'm not even yeah. sure if they're in the third industrial revolution already. What is your experience with that? Is this something where we have to almost redesign education from scratch? Because it doesn't seem like a logical evolution. Yeah, I think in many instances, we are going to redesign education from scratch. And one of the advantages, some of those developing countries, just like they did with mobile technology, is they may just be able to leap to a new system because they don't have to tear down the existing system. And I think that's going to be an enormous trigger because if you want to thrive as a country or as a nation, as a geography or a continent, you probably really have to focus on that. I mean, I don't know how it is with you, but every time that I do presentations and I have people who come to me after a lecture, very Very often, it's not about them, but it's about their kids. And they mm -hmm. say, what should we do? Because, you know, we're stuck in an education system that doesn't seem to be preparing my child for the next wave that is out there. What kind of advice do you give people? I get that question probably more than any other question. So <laughs> no matter what audience I'm in, there are always people, whatever they do for a job, they're still parents. And a lot of them will come up to me and say, well, My son or daughter wants to study anthropology or wants to study music, but I really think he or she should study cybersecurity or data analytics or mathematics. Don't you agree? And I say, absolutely not. <laughs> Because if we're living in a paradigm where you're going to have to learn for life, you better connect them to the things they're interested in, because that's the only way you're going to keep their motivational driver going. The only way you're going to keep that lifelong learning candle lit is if you connect it to their purpose. It seems to be like in a world where if we're moving to that fourth industrial revolution with more technology than ever before, the truly human skills are becoming even more important. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I heard a quote, um, I read it on Twitter yesterday, and I will find who said it. I think it was someone from the London School of Economics that in the second industrial revolution, it was muscle. In the third industrial revolution, it was brains. In the fourth industrial revolution, it's going to be heart. Now, I don't know if that, that's entirely true, because we're still going to need some foundational knowledge and fundamental literacies. But I do think it is going to be the era of humans, and our uniquely human skills will be a premium. So have you seen examples of educational systems um, around the world that seems to be getting into that mode? Because I, I think, ironically, if I take one example, China, which is now seen as the new power giant of the 21st century, very much focused on the new technologies like artificial intelligence, still have very, very old school type of education system with rigorous exams and enormous focus on mathematical skills and an enormously difficult program to select who gets into the best universities. Do you feel that that kind of mechanism needs to be transformed? And have you seen examples around the world where that is already happening? I think that that is an example of a very obedient and convergent culture that focuses on cognitive intelligence. And time will tell if they're right, if that exclusive focus on testing, no knowledge and such proficiencies will really prevail all the way through the fourth industrial revolution. It certainly works in the third, and it certainly works in the building blocks of making the fourth, of making some of the systems, but making meaning out of those systems, I think is going to require something entirely different. And to answer your questions, I've seen little samples of different people doing pilots. So one of the, some of the most interesting ones I've seen, the Khan Academy has started something, I think it was five or six years ago, called the Khan Lab School. 
the face-to-face experience. They started by saying, we're going to experiment with our own kids. And every student is organized by their independence level instead of their age, uh, by their proficiencies, and which may be different depending on what subject matter they're in. Everybody is a teacher and everybody is a student. So everybody's responsible for sharing what they're better at by helping peers, which reinforces their own learning. They all have passion projects and they work through competencies. And that does a whole bunch of things. One, it certainly establishes agency, that the learning is the student's responsibility, learning and teaching. And then it encourages purpose because it requires them to find their passion projects. And then they're still required to move through competencies. And it's a K-12 school. But I think that's really fascinating. I think Montessori still has a lot of merit in inquiry-based learning, which is really connected to motivation and purpose. So things like that, I think, are helpful. I've worked on some things at the higher ed level, but they were always within the existing paradigm. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like, let's make a transdisciplinary major important. They all should be transdisciplinary majors. Bringing it back to the the corporate environment, because, you know, if you look at educational systems, they're prone to typically the slow type of changes. I mean, it's going to probably take a revolution to really put that into a higher gear. But if you go back to the corporates, one of the things that I pick up a lot when I'm I'm talking to large corporations is this enormous issue of reskilling for the 21st century. Um, everywhere that I go, it seems to be like the number one challenge that, you know, they, they hired people in the 20th century because of certain reasons. And all of a sudden in, in a, in a fast changing world, many of those companies and skills just don't work anymore. Reskilling seems to be an enormous challenge. Have you seen examples of companies who are trying to embark on that or with good ideas or, or with good results? Um, yeah, I think what uh, AT&T is doing is, is incredibly ambitious. They're saying, you know, our, our company was founded by telephone poles and people who climbed them. And now it's in the cloud and we've got the same workforce or a lot of the same workforce that, that joined us when they were climbing telephone poles. Many of those people from, for whom don't have a degree. So we're going to look at the talent map we need for our existing business, the talent map we'll need for our next business, because I understand their business models will continue to evolve. And then the capabilities of each of our individual workers and give everybody a talent plan and a learning plan. And if you want to come along with us to the next business model, these are the things you have to learn. And as long as you continue to learn, you can be an employee. I think that's a really compelling idea. Yeah, I think AT&T is also a, a company that is using online platforms like Udacity quite yeah. intensely for those purposes, right? I live in Europe. I live in Belgium. We recently had an example here in Belgium where the number one telecom operator had a, a very similar issue because the government is still a majority stakeholder in the company. It caused quite a stir, but they announced that they were laying off 1,900 people and they wanted to hire 1,250 new people with new <laughs> yeah. skills. And when the CEO was questioned about that, she said, the problem is that these 1,900 people not only have the skills of the past, they don't want to be reskilled. When we talk about lifelong learning, I mean, it's easy to address it from a theoretical point of view, but it's something that right. we really have to inspire people to do that. And it seems to be really difficult. Yeah, and I think, I can't remember if I used the iceberg analogy in when I gave a talk to your group in San Francisco, but the way I see the whole kind of reskilling thing is, is an iceberg. And at the top of the iceberg, which is out of the water, is the skills, the skills you want them to be able to do. And so I, th- I think it has four layers. So the skills are at the top, and what's at the waterline is what I call enablers. 
And those are the uniquely human skills, the things that you're not necessarily hired to do, but they make you better at your job. Creativity, collaboration, judgment, empathy, divergent thinking, all of the kinds of things that the Institute for the Future Work and the World Economic Forum have identified as the skills of the future. Below that, I would say, is the, uh, I call it an agile learning mindset. It's just the mindset that you are going to learn for the rest of your life. And here are the tools in which you'll do it. And then at the bottom of that is identity. And I think the identity is the most overlooked piece of this all. And it's the bottom of the iceberg and can sink you. We've had a culture of work being our identity. And it's been a fixed identity. And we need to help people develop identities that can transcend jobs. So the whole idea that we're just going to take you know, I was a telephone worker and I climbed the telephone poles and my father did too, or my mother did too. And now you're telling me I've got to take these computer classes and I have to understand the cloud. That isn't my identity. So we have to understand the loss of identity, building a mindset for learning, understanding the enablers, and then layering the skill sets on. I think that's the process we have to go through if we really want to truly, quote unquote, reskill some of this workforce. And I, I love that identity issue because you're absolutely right. And it's still something that I try to correct myself every time that I meet somebody. My first question is naturally, what do you do? And it's horrible when I say it, but it's so ingrained into our culture and our society. I think the other thing that I find fascinating is that in a world where things are moving so fast, maybe we should have more comfort with uncertainty. And I think that yes. is something we, we talk about VUCA a lot, but yes. it's incredible in our educational systems and in our work and in our careers, we always need to show that we're absolutely certain while that is not going to be possible anymore. And we probably need people to feel more comfortable with uncertainty. Yes, we need leadership that can say, I don't know, let's find out or I'm not sure. There's uh, one organization that I work with, a very large medical manufacturer, high tech, where you need a doctorate just to get in the door. And they had made a decision that if you are not comfortable with failure and ambiguity, you can't get above a certain level in the organization because they didn't want leadership that was entirely dependent upon their technical skills developed, you know, sometimes a decade or two before. I think that was really interesting. Yeah, and I see it sometimes when I teach at London Business School, one of the things that is fascinating is you see scores of executives coming through the door and you talk about startups and, and culture where failure is accepted and everybody says, yes, yes, failure, very important. But then they go back to their corporate environments and it seems to be really difficult to put that into practice because it's nice to shout failure is a learning, but actually to put that into the current context of organizations, I think that is really difficult to do. It is. And you see that in a lot of business schools. Um, there's a lot of rewarding of convergent thinking, which is really let's zero in on the right answer and get the right point with certainty. And that's why I think for a while design thinking was a big deal in business schools. The idea of divergent thinking and different types of thinking styles and dealing with the ambiguity and that sort of thing and, and, and failure certainly as part of the learning process. Another thing that you wonderfully talked about when we met is this idea of transdisciplinary. You talked about the I to the T to the X. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you can translate that to corporates? Sure. So I think visually. So um, I used a lot of visuals when we, when we met and, get, and when I gave my talk. And I had looked at sort of the design thinking craze that IDEO so brilliantly marketed. And one of the things they marketed was the idea of a T-shaped thinker. And they never said I, but I added the I to it to transition. But an I-shaped thinker would be somebody who says, I work in my discipline. I know my discipline knowledge and nothing else. I know how to apply my discipline knowledge in an narrow and siloed context, and that's it. And then when this whole notion of a T-shaped thinker emerged, it was really around 
uh, product development, it was saying, okay, we need to make sure that designers and engineers and marketers, et cetera, can all talk to each other. So you still had the deep part of the T, you still had your discipline identity, but you had the ability to work in the adjacent functions, which was the top of the T. And that's what they were looking for in terms of thinkers. But as the world gets more and more complex and that technology can do more and more, I started thinking that it really is more of an X now where you work at the intersection of multiple disciplines and the intersection of humans and technology. Because in some instances, technology is a better actor to solve the problem and sometimes the human's a better actor and it's the collaboration among them. And so in an organization, what does that mean is how do I define myself? If you still define yourself, and I think this is dangerous, by your function, then you're still a little stuck in that discipline. Mm-hmm. And you still, if you explore a space, if you explore a problem from that discipline's perspective, you're also stuck. Do you ever get the feeling, Heather, that if you see that evolution, and I love that I to T to X, we're maybe adding more and more complexity or difficulty or load to being able to function? I mean, are we making it more stressful for human beings to function in that transdisciplinary X type of, or do you think that that is something we shouldn't worry about? It's going to be natural to a next generation, which has grown up on a different context. Yeah, I think it could be natural to the next generation because when you think about it, the whole idea of a disciplinary context was we chunked knowledge into these artificial silos because it was easier to transfer, mm-hmm. not because it ever existed that way. Yeah, so it actually, yeah, so it'll just actually be very natural once we stop breaking those things into into little chunks for transfer, and we start um, taking a more problem based approach to most of our learning. Where you know you discover along the way, you're not it's just not a codified transfer of existing skills. You know, well, and one can only hope, of course, because I think having two kids myself, fifteen and nineteen, um, I, I hate the word digital native. I think that is utterly stupid. I think they're network natives. That probably makes mm-hmm. more sense because they've grown yeah. up in a network. They've, they don't care about a silo. They don't care about a site. They just find access to information and, and combine it in ways that are you know, interesting or, or relevant to them. So I think in a way, they've grown up with that idea of you know, transdisciplinary or network-based thinking. But then I come to the core question that I have is that, you know, you, you spend a lot of time talking about this and I think you're leading and, and showing us things that are going to have to materialize. But then the reality is that we both see a lot of corporations where human resources is still done in a very old school way. They're really stuck in a 20th century paradigm. They often mm-hmm. have very old style tools. I mean, if I see sometimes, you know, the IT systems that human resources departments have to run with, it seems just completely alien to the challenges that we're going to be throwing at organizations in the future. How do you see development or HR coping with that? And can you give them some hope? Because I see a lot of frustrated HR individuals there. Well, I can't answer it from the technology. Your technology is your background, so you're much more adept at answering the question from a technology standpoint. But I could step away from it and say, if you look at the five biggest companies in the last 100 years, 100 years ago, it was all oil, steel, meatpacking companies, and they extracted value from natural assets. And in order to do that, they needed access to capital. That's how you won. 50 years ago, it was all scalable production. So it was consumer goods companies that were emerging, and they needed access to technology and some level of trained talent. If you look at the companies, five biggest companies now, which are Apple, Amazon, you know, Google, et cetera, they win by having access to talent. Because as soon as technology is developed, it's almost ubiquitous. 
So the human talent is the competitive advantage. Once we start realizing that, we're going to rethink what HR is. I think HR has the most potential of any function in the company. It's going to be the most important. We'll think differently about how we hire, what tools we give them. They've got to be front and center at the leadership team, the, probably the biggest player in the leadership team because they're the most important difference. But the reality, of course, is that in many organizations, I would say put your best person on HR and yes. then you can really play that role. But in many right. companies, that, that transition probably hasn't happened yet. Nope, but if you look at where it has happened, they're winning. You know, Lazlo Bach at Google was famous. When has an HR person ever been famous before? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, HR could be the hero of the organization if absolutely. they make the transition. Yeah. The other thing is very often we put learning and development as part of HR. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. probably a lot of them as well. But that's something that I find really fascinating because we've talked about education and how that is changing, what we typically call the business schools. And yeah. and a lot of uh, affinity with them as well. And I love them in a way. But I got into a discussion recently that if you look at an MBA, which we've always seen as like, that's the pinnacle of if you want to understand business, you need an MBA. It seems to me like most of the skills that we teach MBA students are still very 20th century skills. I mean, doesn't seem to be like we've been able to reinvent the MBA for the 21st century. Do we need to just Tabula rasa, start all over again? Do we need to create something new? What is your opinion on that? I think that we do have opportunities to create something new. I think there's some good stuff in there. Um, so I wouldn't throw it all out. I, I happen to have one of those MBAs. <laughs> and I got mine from Babson College in uh, Massachusetts. And they've been number one entrepreneurship for like 25 years or something like that in the world. And they keep iterating on what you need to know in order to be an entrepreneur. What classes do you really need to take and how do you need to connect them to each other? And they sort of have design thinking built into it, although they don't use that word. And I worked with another group, Philadelphia University, which is now part of Jefferson, and they built a strategic design MBA, which is really an MBA with design thinking at the heart of it. And um, Roger Martin did that at University of Toronto. So there are some players that have looked at, um, CCA has one in um, California. There are a number of players who have looked at the MBA as more of a transdisciplinary degree. I think that's the way to go. I think the traditional old MBA probably should retire. Yeah, and I agree. And, and, you know, when you talk about complicated to complex and, and that idea of transdisciplinary, I think that is something which is essential because those, I think, are going to be really important things for leaders of tomorrow. And it probably, in my opinion, also means that we have to redevelop that leadership development type of role because in, in, in many companies, it was about selecting people to go to these classes and these business schools where mm-hmm. if we want to, you know, focus on that lifelong learning and make it much more of a skill centered, but also an experienced type of environment, you know, transcending traditional silos. I think that leadership development in HR has to completely change as well. Absolutely. And in the, on that complicated, the complex thing in terms of leadership, if you were in an organization 50 years ago, if you were the sort of the top of the pyramid in, a, in one of those hierarchical things, you could make a decision with certainty because you had skills and knowledge of probably every chair that you managed because you'd either sat in it or skipped over it. Now, with so much knowledge being developed so much more quickly and so many different things from data analytics to cybersecurity, chances are slim you have all that knowledge. So your decision-making process has to be different. You're focusing on developing people and increasing the capacity of your organization. It's no longer about certainty and decisions and administration of process. And that's a real huge change in leadership. 
Yeah, absolutely. You have to be secure in not knowing and deferring to other people who have knowledge you don't have. And I think that's going to be a big transition. Heather, uh, thank you very much. I, uh, maybe one last question before we go. If, sure. if you talk to audiences around the world and you talk to leadership teams, if there's a CEO there that says, wow, you know, that when, when you, Heather, talk about the future of work is learning, I really get that. What would be practical advice that you would give these people that they could start doing something differently tomorrow? Start looking at your workforce as humans and inspiring them as humans and look to see what they're motivated and interested in and hire the human first and figure out the job second. Screen for a cultural fit, not for skills and past experience because chances are good whatever you're hiring them to do is not going to be what they actually end up doing. So hire some humans that you like, that you trust, that have shared values, and then help them figure out the job around their own interests I think that is wonderful and perfect advice. Heather, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. I really Thanks. enjoyed it. Thanks so much. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.